Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Scott Horton, who is the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of the excellentantiwar.com, host of the Scott Horton Show, author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And his latest book is just out, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. We'll be talking foreign policy and all things war on terror. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. How are you and how is Enough Already doing? Uh, I'm doing great, and the book is doing really well. I thought uh, Fool's Aaron had done really well, but this one is uh, outpacing it, you know, uh, pretty quickly. I've sold um, almost three thousand in the last month, so that doesn't compare to like a big hit put out by a big publisher or something. But uh, for an independent, you know, little libertarian institute publication, that's pretty damn good, I think. All right. Yeah, I'm just finishing up the, the book. I have the e version and I recommend listeners uh, check it out. Uh, if I were, I, I used to teach foreign policy at the university here in Mexico, and I, I would definitely have used uh, some chapters as assigned reading for students uh, really? uh, of your book. And I, I like how it gives really a big overview and just kind of you get the whole picture of, of what's going on. But, you know, um, I know you did a podcast on big tech censorship recently with Alan McLeod uh, of Mint mm -hmm. Press. And uh, before that, I just wanted to remind my listeners that YouTube took down uh, one of our recent interviews and gave us a strike. Patreon terminated our account. Uh, Reddit censored us and our Facebook page is restricted. And so if people want to listen to this interview, you're going to have to go everywhere except for YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Odyssey, BitChute. Uh, and for the, the best place uh, to stay in touch with us uh, is our email list, Telegram and al alternative social media. And, you know, I wanted to get maybe your comment on censorship, because I think... Well, what it, did they kick you off for? I'm interested to know. Well, I, I interviewed a doctor, a Brazilian doctor, Dr. Mark Circus, who gets reposted to Lou Rockwell uh, as well frequently. And it was about COVID and global cooling and the Great Reset. So, any, and it said anything that contradicts the World Health Organization, you're done. So... Yeah, but the World Health Organization is on the both sides of every question anyway, right? So... That, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Assuming uh, you have the right to appeal, you could probably quote the World Health Organization as to why you were right the first time. But yeah, no, it's crazy. And I mean, honestly, uh, it's surprising to me that, you know, people really, they just don't seem raised on this anymore the way that we were in my generation. That, as uh, Thomas Jefferson said, I see him in the background there, that error of opinion shall be tolerated as long as reason is left free to combat it. What else are you going to do? You're going to hire the commissar of what's true from some government agency to tell you what's true? Come on. They're the most dishonest people of all. They have major incentives for making you think one thing so that they can do something else, whether we're talking about germs or any other issue, right? So all you can do, there's always going to be cults. There's always going to be people with crazy superstitions. There's always going to be people who believe in nutty conspiracy theories. A lot of those people are going to always work at CNN and, you know, preach that all as the official truth. And so all you can do in the society from the bottom up and from the side and from top down in whichever way is fight about it. No, dumb, dumb. You're wrong because the answer is this, not that. And that's all you can do. And sometimes reason will win out and sometimes emotion will win out. But what's the alternative? The alternative is to let a government agency say what the official truth is. I mean, even right there, just from the base of it, take the germ example or any other. Once they say a thing, man, if they realize they're wrong tomorrow, it's so hard for them to take it back and admit that they were wrong in a way that almost anyone else can be more flexible than a government agent, especially when 
It's the pronounced official truth and you'll get in trouble for contradicting it. Now, after kicking you off of six different platforms, they're going to admit they were wrong the next day and say, oh, actually, he was right after all. And so it's just I, I can't believe that anybody thinks that there's any solution to wrong information beyond more information. And if that's not a good enough answer and it's not tough because it's still the best answer, there's no other answer. That's the way it is. Simple as that. Everyone else who disagrees with that is wrong and stupid. And their opinion is illegitimate. See how I did that? They should be censored. Yeah, Only people I mean, who believe in free speech should be allowed to speak. Yeah, that's, that's the, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. That's my libertarian uh, part of me. And, you know, I thought I would mention that as well. I, I said it's part of the war on terror because that same week, the AP put out uh, a story together with the Atlantic Council, NATO's think tank, which mentioned my interview with Francis Boyle. So they were basically doing a hit piece. Uh, and really? I think that that's one of the reasons. That, yeah, a year ago, we did an interview on Corona where he said it was a bioweapon and that was taken down. And so right as this piece came out last week, I get uh, Patreon terminated and, and all that sort of stuff. So anyways, let's let, let's get on to your. To well, your wait, let's stick with that for just a second. OK, so yeah. I don't have an opinion on this either way. I'm just recounting a little bit of history. OK, as like Howard Cosell, the announcer here. The CIA thought, according to Bob Woodward, the CIA thought that the Chinese government deliberately decided to withhold information about the germ. And while they locked down on travel inside China, they kept Wuhan open for the new year, let five million people come and go. And the CIA told Donald Trump that they thought that the Chinese did that because they thought, well, hell, if we're going to get sick, you're all going to get sick. And even the playing field or some kind of thing. Right. Then there's the question of whether the germ was actually created in a lab, not necessarily as a bioweapon, but one thing that the germologists do all the time is they breed the viruses to be more and more virile to practice killing them. But it, if it takes, if it's too difficult to get the virus to infect the cell, well, you help it hurry up a little bit. And then you, and so there's always been the chance that something like that could escape from the lab. And everybody knows there's a lab like that in Wuhan. And they said that that was crazy. You're not even allowed to think that that's stupid and crazy and horrible and wrong and a crazy conspiracy theory. It must have been a pangolin at the wet market because somebody said so. Right. But then every few months it comes out that actually there are top level researchers in different governments and different agencies at the WHO and the CDC and whoever the Germans and whoever. I don't know. I'm making up the Germans. I forget. But um who say that actually we think that is maybe what happened, that we think there's a strong probability. We can't prove it, but we think that actually this must have been an escaped virus. Uh, you know, and then there are people who say, yeah, and even it must come from America in the first place because the Wuhan lab was working with an American lab and all this. Now, all this is either true and it, or it isn't. And it's either provable or it's not right. Like, I don't know. But if the story, the official story on this kind of question which is a very controversial conspiracy theory type of a question, supposedly. Again, short of bioweapon, no, no one, maybe Francis Boyle, but nobody else necessarily is saying it was deliberate to get you, but just it was deliberately engineered for other purposes and escaped accidentally, right? Would be the, the Occam's razor kind of version of that. Well, the only way to get to the answer to that 
is to argue about it and to let people argue about it, not kick off everybody who says the wrong answer this month. That's going to be the right answer next month. And then it's going to be the wrong answer again in another few months. And why should it be that only people with official germologist jobs at what only government agencies work at? What if they work at a private university, but they're really, really smart or what? Who gets to be in charge of this stuff? The answer is nobody gets to be in charge of saying what's officially true. You let people argue about it. And then it should be that the last man stands with the best argument that no one else can refute, you know, but I mean, on the germ, I think is a really important one. I think there are a lot of cranky opinions in all directions on the germ, right? And how is anyone supposed to make sense of it unless you have equal access to all sides, you know? Yeah, I guess th this is just an example of how far we've we've uh, come. Uh, and so, you know, looking at your 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 book, um, like I said, it gives a great overview of the war on terror, and it kind of it's a reminder of the schizophrenic insanity of u.s uh, foreign policy we obviously won't touch on every, everything uh in the book but maybe we could like start with uh iraq and there's you know you you go over a lot of the interesting history how you know the schizophrenia where u.s arms both sides uh, in the iran iraq war and then yeah. uh you, you were talking about saddam's invasion of kuwait where you're saying that he could hussein could have been misreading washington uh as opposed to the other explanation where uh you know it was a trap set by washington to get him to invade kuwait and then use it as a pretext for invading uh, iraq and mm -hmm. so you know i i personally tend to think u.s policy is much more maybe diabolical and deliberate and less trial and error could you speak on you know what's most important to, to understand of the iraq adventures and then your thoughts on you know whether U.S. actions are more methodical, long-planned agendas are more like short-term, clumsy, opportunist attempts at you know, attempting to uh, obtain economic resources and expand the military. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, these aren't really exclusive concepts, right? Like you have a broad agenda for full-spectrum dominance and American global preeminence and predominance and hegemony and whatever kind of thing. And then you have George W. Bush's and Barack Obama's are the one in charge of you know, actually implementing the policy. And so they screw up everything all the time. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm glad that you brought up Iraq War One. I think that's a great example. If you take all the information in my book about the circumstances surrounding Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, if you want to be cynical about it, I just made the case that they deliberately entrapped their friend Saddam Hussein into this war. On the other hand, it really doesn't seem like the people involved at the time really had that in mind at all. And usually, if it is that kind of a nefariousness, it's pretty easy to tell just how deliberate it was. Here, it seems much more like you had just the, uh, what do they call it, the commander, you know, lieutenant problem or whatever, where orders get given, but they don't necessarily get implemented just the right way or whatever. So you have the um, central command and the CIA are telling the Kuwaitis, eh, Saddam ain't so tough. He ain't going to do nothing. You guys, you just keep up, you know, your deal and it's going to be fine. At the same time, the DIA back at the Pentagon was saying, we think Saddam Hussein is serious. And apparently, and you know, you could read this cynically if you want to. I just don't read it that way. I mean, there's multiple sources for this where apparently Paul Wolfowitz was really upset and was, you know, he was the deputy secretary of defense or deputy, uh, deputy secretary of defense for policy at the, at the time under Cheney. 
And he was freaking out like, man, Saddam's going to do this. These idiots at the CIA are, you know, act like nothing's going to happen, but something's going to happen. And so they tried to send a letter. They had Bush Sr. send a letter to Saddam, but then it wasn't harsh enough. And they were like, oh, no, it was too conciliatory. Send another one that's harsher. But then that one was kind of too late. And just, you know, I think if you asked anybody involved in all this snafu, like Cheney and Wolfowitz apparently seemingly really wanted to let Saddam know that he better not. But then it's James Baker, the secretary of state, who's had April, uh, April Glaspie, the ambassador, tell Saddam, well, I don't know, James Baker doesn't really give a damn about your border dispute with Kuwait. And then here's the thing that you get from almost everybody, dude. And this is where it comes down to the question of entrapment. It's a real gray area because I don't think it was a question of entrapment as much as, yes, they did deliberately invite him to invade Kuwait. But as April Glassby told the New York Times, well, we didn't think he was going to take the whole country. He was just supposed to take the northern oil fields. He was supposed to move the border 20 miles or so and say, what are you going to do about it kind of a thing? But since he was so confident, the Americans weren't going to do anything about it. He went ahead and invaded the whole way. And when you talk about the in your question, you mentioned misreading. I quote in there. See, what happened was for years we had Saddam's government's version of the minutes of that meeting. But then the Americans could say, yeah, well, but that's not exactly accurate. But we can't say exactly how it's not, except the worst parts aren't true. But then Chelsea Manning leaked. To WikiLeaks in 2010, we got the real Glassby memo from the State Department side. And so now you can compare and contrast the two. And yes, the American one is slightly less damning than the Iraqi version. But Stephen Walt from Harvard University at uh, his blog at foreignpolicy.com, he says, take this part where Glassby tells Saddam, look, George W. Bush, I mean, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr. here, he's not interested in having a war in the Middle East right now. That in diplomatic language, you have to know this is all very carefully worded stuff. It's all spoken in code and things. It's not just like, let me tell you something, buddy. And everybody's very frank, right? So Walt says, well, listen, Saddam wasn't planning a war, was he? Right? He was planning what's called a coup de main, which means you just roll your tanks right down Main Street and there's no resistance to even be had. It's not even really one big battle. Maybe it's one big battle. But maybe not even a battle, right? Like Hitler rolling into Austria. Hey, guess what, guys? New government's in town. And then it's just done. So if Glassby told Hussein, Bush is not interested in having a war, that sounds like a cute way of saying, go ahead and invade Kuwait. We're not going to have a war. And if you're Saddam Hussein, you go, okay, great. I mean, he's worked for them for nine years. What's the problem? You know, he's been tight since Jimmy Carter at this point. So and, and we know it's in the records and everything that the Bush government was still selling him weapons all the way up until the time he invaded Kuwait. So that came out in the Iraq gate scandal later. So he had every reason to think that essentially he could take James Baker's word for it, that the Americans aren't going to do anything. And then he went too far. He went all the way to the coast, you know. Mm -hmm. And so then and see, even then. And this is according to the official history, Bob Woodward, you know, according to the principles themselves, the way they told it, they didn't give a damn. And the night of the 2nd of August, 1990, they had a big cabinet meeting where uh, it's Colin Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Cheney was the secretary of defense. Scowcroft was national security advisor. Wolfowitz, again, deputy secretary of defense for policy. And they all agreed, 
I guess even Wolfowitz agreed. Certainly Cheney at defense agreed. And then George Bush Sr. like signed off on the decision that night that we're not going to do anything. We're going to draw the line at Saudi Arabia and we're going to tell them you better not invade Saudi Arabia. But then the next day, Bush had a pre already scheduled event with Margaret Thatcher in Colorado. And she in front of reporters said, now, don't you get all wobbly on me now, Bush. In other words, you can't be less of a man than a woman, your junior partner in the current American empire system. And so the answer was, that's right. If she says it that way, then he has to live up to that. And so then that night he said, this will not stand this aggression against Kuwait, blah, blah. And then they spent and this is Murray Wass and Noam Chomsky and, and especially Murray Wass at uh, New York Newsday on Long Island had like five pieces, but there are a bunch of pieces from all of 1990 about how Bush would not negotiate with Hussein. And Hussein, all he wanted was the slightest bit of face saving so he could back out and they wouldn't let him have it. Not the slightest bit. And, and he kept his, by the end, by the beginning of January, 1991, 30 years ago, we've been at war with Iraq now. By the end of January, Saddam Hussein's conditions for withdrawal were America has to promise to leave its bases in the Middle East and withdraw from the Middle East at some point. And the Israelis have to agree to negotiate over an independent state for the Palestinians at some point. Mm -hmm. In other words, give me a pinky promise that someday things are going to be better around here or something. That's all he needed was anything at all. In other words, if I'm not making myself clear here, those were demands that were so vague as to be absolutely meaningless. Okay. That was essentially the same as just giving away the whole store. And Bush refused to accept that and said, oh, no, any concession at all is a reward for aggression. And that will not happen. And then, so they used that as the excuse to start the war. And we've been bombing Iraq for 30 years straight ever since then. Mm -hmm. And this sort of mechanic kind of plays over and over again in, in the other parts of the region and in, in the other countries. And you, you detail Iraq, Iraq War Two, Iraq War Three. I think you're, you finish at Iraq uh, War Three and a half. Um, mm -hmm. And like you said, that's still ongoing. And then looking at another part of the region, I, I mean, I was fascinated to read about, I, I didn't know this, that um, a consequence of U.S. actions in, in Iraq were that they were actually helping uh, Iran. And, you know, I did an interview again with Francis Boyle uh, on Iran not long ago. And, and I mentioned him because I haven't really covered Middle East. You're probably like the second or third person I'm interviewing uh, uh, on the topic or, or fourth. And mm -hmm. so um, you mentioned, I think, somewhere in your book that war with Iran was planned since 1996. And then Boyle had mentioned that, you know, under the Bush administration, the, the plan for war with Iran was ready to go, but Iraq had already been too much and they, they were going to pass it off to a, a further administration. O Obama didn't do it. Trump uh, didn't do it. And then, you know, recently we had this incident in the Gulf of Oman where an Israeli ship was poking around and purportedly got attacked by Iran. Um, you know, it seems like they're constantly goading Iran. You know, maybe some of these are false flag operations. I don't know. So you know, how, how do you see uh, Iran and th this situation th with Iran going going forward? Could they actually carry out a, wo a war that, that they have planned? Man, OK, so there's a lot there. Remind me at the end if I space out and forget to address the attack on the Israeli ship there, because that's very important. But that's all the way up to current day here. But to rewind a little bit here, and I'll do it real fast, okay? In 1979, there was the revolution in Iran. 
where they overthrew the American installed CIA dictator, uh, the sock puppet dictator, the Shah Reza Pahlavi. And they, the Shiite Ayatollah Khomeini came to power and they essentially declared independence from the United States. Certainly by the end of that year, it's complicated. But by the end of that year, they had declared independence from the U.S. Jimmy Carter responded in early 1980 by telling Saddam Hussein to go ahead and invade. And Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's government backed Saddam Hussein against Iran for the primary reason of trying to contain the Iranian revolution. Sorry, this way, stage right. Okay, so here's Iraq, here's Iran, from Baghdad down to Kuwait and over to Iran. This is all supermajority Shiite territory. And in fact, the supermajority of the entire country, 60% Shiite Arabs. Now in Persia, they're not Arabs, but they're Shiites, or at least the dominant faction in control is. So when the Iranian revolution came, Saddam Hussein was worried that it was going to come into Iraq. So he conscripted all these Shiites and sent them to war against Iran instead, right? So then at the end of Iraq War I, Bush Sr. encouraged the Shiites to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein and the Kurds too in the far north of the country to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. But then he choked. He changed his mind. He left them high and dry to get massacred by Saddam. A hundred thousand of them killed. Why did he do that? He did that because he realized, oh, crap, we're now importing the Shiite revolution from Iran that we just spent eight years back in Saddam Hussein to contain. And now we got Shiite militias, Iraqis who've been living in Iran for 20 years or 10 years at that time, start coming across the border to lead the revolution. So they go, uh uh-uh, and they call it off and they let Saddam kill them all. Then that becomes the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia for eight years, partially under the bogus theory of searching for weapons of mass destruction, which don't exist anymore, but also to protect the Shiites and the Kurds. We have to wage these no-fly zones over Iraq in the north and the south and leave our troops and airmen at bases in Saudi Arabia. This becomes the primary motivation for al-Qaeda to attack us, which then becomes the primary excuse for George W. Bush to go back to Iraq after fooling everybody's dumb mom and dad into confusing the guy with the mustache with the guy with the beard. They're totally different dudes. But anyway, and so they invade the country. And But what happens? In reality, Junior is picking up right where his father left off when his father encouraged this Shiite uprising and betrayed it. Now Bush comes in, knocks off Saddam, and he brings the Shiite revolution to power. Well, guess what? Just like his father had feared, it was all led by guys who'd been living in Iran. Now for 20 years, they'd been living in Iran. And now they come to be the leaders of the country. And so we invade in March 2003. In January 2004, the Supreme Ayatollah, Ali al-Sistani, says, hey, if you believe in God, I want you to go outside and demand one man, one vote. George Bush promised us democracy. We want it. Let's have it. In other words, hey, Bush, you want to start this war all over again against the supermajority that has not fought you or resisted you at all yet? And Bush said, no, I don't want to start the war all over again. Sorry. And at that point, Bush and Rumsfeld and Petraeus and the whole group became the servants of the Iranians, friends. Now, I'm not I'm not really not claiming that the Dawah Party and the Supreme Islamic Council are like the slaves of the Iranians, that they're the wholly owned sock puppet dictators. Um, You know, they have their own interests. They're Iraqis, not Iranians. But boy, are they best friends. And they definitely had the same agenda in mind. This is the same agenda that Joe Biden thought was also really smart. What we should do is divide the country up. 
I mean, if you're the Shiites and you're now taking over the capital city with the help of the Americans, cleansing all of this, the Sunni Arabs out of the capital for you, and you now have this big Iraqi Shia stand, including the capital of Baghdad, plus all the oil down in the south and control over the oil up north near Kirkuk, which you share with the Kurds. Why try to conquer all the Sunnis in the West? Sorry, stage right. Why try to conquer Fallujah and, and Mosul and Tikrit and try to rule these cities where you're really not wanted as the dominant power? So they really just kind of cut them loose. Call it strong federalism, meaning they created their new kind of Iraqi Shia stand and left the Sunnis high and dry. Okay, now, as you're saying, as you're kind of alluding to, well, this is totally stupid and wrong from the point of view of the American empire. They weren't trying to empower Iran. They were trying, the theory was that the neocons believed was that if they invaded Iraq, they would have dominance over the Iraqi Shiites. And then they would use that to lord it over Iran. And so they wouldn't have to go to war with Iran. You really can't go to war with Iran, man. It's too, too big. And so this is all, since we can't attack them, what else can we do? And then this was one theory, right? Is we'll take control of the Shiites in Iraq and then we'll use them to uh, take control over the situation in Iran, to separate Hezbollah in Lebanon away from Iran and all these things, none of which worked, right? So by 2006, the Bush guys realized it. Man, we just scored a huge goal for the other team, the Iranians, by giving their best friends Baghdad. So now what do we do? And you got to read this article. Everyone in your audience, please read this article. You'll love it. I promise. It's, it's incredible. I read it years later and I'm like, wow, this is really something else. It's called The Redirection. It's by Seymour Hirsch in the New Yorker magazine, March 2007. And it's about how last year these idiots figured out that, oops, we just fought a war for the Ayatollahs. And now we got to turn around and make it up to the Sunni, the Sunni kings, the Saudi king, especially, you know, read them the riot act. Said you just gave Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. Now, what are you going to do about it? And they said, whatever you say, your highness. And so that was Cheney and Khalilzad over there. Um, and so they started backing the Al-Qaeda guys again. They went right back to the 1980s Afghanistan policy of backing these Al-Qaeda terrorists because that's what our Saudi allies wanted to do. The fact that they had killed 3,000 people in New York and in uh, D.C., the fact that they had killed 4,000 out of the 4,500, or well, I shouldn't say it. the fact that they were the worst part of the Sunni insurgency in Iraq War II, which killed 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans who died there, and plus thousands of Shiite civilians, and who knows what, the um, uh, Zarqawi and the worst Al-Qaeda in Iraq guys. Didn't matter to them. They didn't care. And they started, and this is still during Bush. This isn't Obama. It's still during Bush. They started backing Al-Qaeda guys in Lebanon, the Muslim Brotherhood in um, Syria, and a group called Jandala in Iran. So in other words, the very most radical edge of the Sunni side against the Shiites. Okay. Then Obama comes to power and he does the same thing. So everybody thought, oh, he's a secret Muslim from Kenya and he's siding with our enemy against us. Well, he was siding with our enemy against us, but it wasn't because he was a secret Muslim from Kenya. It's because he was a secret George W. Bush from America. You know, that was what it was. This is our policy. This is what we do. When we fought against these guys, anytime we did fight against them, like in Yemen for a time or in Pakistan, that's the aberration. If you want, you know, the consistent pattern is the Mujahideen work for us in the Saudis and we use them all over the place. So they used them in Libya, which was not really against the Shiites, but they wanted rid of Gaddafi anyway, the Saudis did. 
And then most importantly, they went on to Syria. Starting in 2011, the CIA ran a program working with the Saudis, the Qataris, the Jordanians, the Turks, and the Israelis all to ship weapons and billions of dollars and fighters from places like Saudi and uh, Libya, which the Americans were in charge of that part of it, um, and, and the Qataris, uh, to ship all these fighters and, and weapons off to Syria. They called them moderate rebels and pretended it was a civil war and a civilian uprising, a pro-democratic uprising, but it wasn't. And Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the bad guys from Iraq War II, they came across the border into Syria and they really took charge of the revolution. By the beginning of 2012, they were the most dominant force on the Sunni insurgency side against uh, the dictator um, Bashar al-Assad. Now, the reason this happened, and they said it over and over and over again, and I show it in the book over and over because you wouldn't believe me. It's so crazy. So I, I have block quotes from the president, the vice president, the secretary, both secretaries of state, Clinton and Kerry, um, and Biden, the vice president, all talking about here's what we did and here's why we did it. Um, and they say, yeah, this, is, this will help weaken Iran because the Alawites, who are the dominant uh, minority faction in Syria, are close with the Shiites and have an alliance with the Iranians. They also, by the way, protect the Druze and the Christians, the three or four different kinds of Christians, the Shiite Arabs and all the secular Arabs, or at least, you know, um, business class Arabs like in Aleppo who are Sunnis, but who have no interest whatsoever in all this jihadist crap. So, you know, they're by secular. That doesn't mean atheist, but it just it means not favoring religious factions instead trying to uh, hold stability between uh, religious factions, keep them from fighting, you know? And so in this sense, what Barack Obama's policy was in Syria amounted to the highest of treason. I mean, this is the kind of thing that makes Benedict Arnold look like a hero. He's the guy in the American Revolution tried to give away West Point to the British. Um, I mean, this pales in comparison. And it wasn't out of loyalty. Again, it's not like Obama was loyal to these guys, but they are the enemies of the American people. So the fact that Obama and his government thought, oh, we can just be clever and use them to accomplish our mission, that doesn't make it not treason. It's still treason. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they did it, to again, to spite the Shiites. Why? Because they're mad that they gave them Baghdad. So now they're, it's, but it's their own fault, the Americans' own fault. So, but now they want consolation prizes. So now they want to take Damascus away from them. But then what happens? And John Kerry, I have the quote from Kerry, and it's almost hilarious, except how tragic it is. Half a million people or more died in this stupid war. Okay. But John Kerry explains on tape, hidden, hidden uh, recording. He didn't know he was being recorded. And he says, listen, we saw the rise of ISIS. We thought we could manage. We thought we could use them to pressure Assad to step down from power. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all, by the way. I don't know, you know how much you know about the, uh, I don't know that much about um, Mexican history other than when America stole the northern two-thirds of it. But in the American Civil War, you had Abraham Lincoln in the north and Jefferson Davis and General Lee down there in the south. If Actually, this really happened. The British and French were beginning to lean toward the south. And so guess what happened? Abraham Lincoln he didn't resign and let the British name his replacement. Oh, geez, if, if the British and the French are going to start backing my enemies, I better resign and let them name my replacement. Does that make any sense at all? No. What did he do? He called the Russians for help. 
He called the Russians for help. Abraham Lincoln did. And they sent warships to New York and to San Francisco Bay to keep the Confederates out and to threaten war against the British and the French if they dared to escalate on the side of the South. Well, that's the exact same thing that Bashar al-Assad did. He called the Russians for help. Think about this. Imagine being the secretary of state and thinking, yeah, if we support the rise of an actual government, a state of Osama bin Laden's that will pressure Assad to resign from power and turn his country over to them rather than fighting to the death to protect his people. And every time these jihadists had a chance, they massacred Druze, they massacred Alawites. I mean, war, uh, hideous war crimes that they committed when they got to Latakia and, and just, you know, civilians cut into pieces, hanging from trees and stuff, just absolute atrocities. Um, even the New York Times at one point was forced to admit that, you know what, if ISIS had taken Latakia, they'd have killed everybody. That's the heroes. That's the moderate rebels that they supported. And that led, as you tell, I'm leading to that led to the rise of the creation of the Islamic State, not just ISIS, a terrorist group, which is just another name for Al Qaeda in Iraq. But they literally erased the border between Iraq and Syria and created a state for three years. And then what happened? The Americans had to go right back to war for those same Iraqi Shiite factions that they wish they hadn't fought Iraq War II for. Now they fought Iraq War III for them. And I really don't think that was the plan, you know, that they wanted the Al Qaeda guys. I mean, when you talk, you know, the early question was how much of this is deliberate and how much of this is stupidity. I mean, I honestly, I take Kerry at his word that that is how damned dumb he is, that this is what we thought was going to happen. But instead, something different happened. And isn't that funny and didn't work out the way we thought. And even at the time, if you go back, I just saw another clip like this the other day where they're talking about just. Like, uh, say, in 2014, the second half of 2014, after they after ISIS conquers Western Iraq. Biden says this at Harvard. Kerry says this. They're all different. They say, yeah, we got to get our Sunni allies to go in there and roust ISIS out. It's got to be led by the Saudis and the Jordanians, even Bernie Sanders. I love this. Bernie Sanders. The Saudis are going to have to get their hands dirty. Oh, really? Huh? The guys who supported the rise of ISIS in the first place with us this whole time. Yeah, he needs a couple of new briefers to let him know what the hell is going on there. But that narrative was completely bogus, right? Saudi and Jordan and Turkey, they were going to invade and get rid of ISIS for us. They had supported the rise of ISIS, especially Saudi and Turkey had. They were going to go in there and get rid of them for us. We were going to go in there and get rid of them for them and also for the Shiites. And in fact, in the case of the war in Tikrit, the battle in Tikrit, I got I quote in the book, the Americans saying, yes, it's true. We were flying as Iran's Air Force over there, bombing ISIS form. And I got quotes from the Iranians saying, you know what? We got to admit we couldn't have done it without the Americans flying as our air cover. And John McCain tweeted out. You can find it still on his Twitter feed right now that are we flying as Iran's Air Force in Iraq? And from 2014. And then the answer was, yes, sir, for the last 11 years because of you. That's the deal. Yeah. And so and then the same thing. So then look at um, in Yemen, they launched the war in Yemen because I'm skipping many steps here, but the, they launched the worst of the war in 2015 because the Houthis, who are friends with Iran, took over the capital city. So they thought, well, we'll just drop 
bombs on them until everything is the way we want it again. Well, now it's six years later, the Houthis still control the capital city and the supermajority of the population of the whole country, despite the fact that every paper in the West insists, every media organization in the West insists on calling them rebels. They took over the capital city six years ago. What's rebels about them at this point? Nothing. But anyway, um, and they call the people who live in a hotel in Riyadh the government. Yeah. Okay. Really impressive. Um, And they've accomplished nothing except what? They've made the Houthis even closer to Iran than ever before. As the Iranians keep PayPaling them money, sending them designs and and 3D printers for better drones, uh, new and improved techniques for improving their medium range missiles that they already have. Uh, that Obama bought for them earlier. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think really, and, and I try to explain in the Bill Clinton section in the book, you know, the in the 1990s before, or I, I guess is in the beginning of the Iraq War II section, that Bush and Rumsfeld and Cheney had their reasons for sure. But the neocons were the intellectual firepower to tell them that, yes, this is going to work. This is going to be great. And with they they had worked it out, you know, we did all our game theory, boss. It's going to be perfect. And their idea was all of this was meant to weaken Iran and weaken Iran's alliance with Syria and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And all they have done other. I mean, Libya is a side issue as bad as it is. It's a little bit outside this story and Afghanistan, too. But in terms of right there in the Middle East, in Arabia, Mesopotamia and the Levant, all they have done is empower Iran this entire time and Al Qaeda with them, you know, sometimes incidentally, like in Iraq War II, and sometimes absolutely deliberately like the war in Syria. And then now here we are 20 years later, there's tens of thousands of bin Ladenites around the world when we started with 400. You answered a lot of my my questions, and one of them was supporting um, the terrorists. And I was just going to mention, this week it was reported in the Syrian news agency that American troops who are illegally in Syria are moving um, jihadis and ISIS around to use them against the Syrian government. And at the same time, Tulsi Gabbard comes out and says the same thing. And President Putin just said, uh, he told his government this week as well, that we need to look into um, the contacts between terror groups and foreign intelligence services. So now oh, yeah. it's like, you know, the, 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 that's kind of fascinating. And um, as we're kind of running out of time, there's a lot in the book which I re- recommend people to to look at, but something oh, that you, was... Huh? Israel. Yeah. Uh, remember, you, you brought up the boat, the, the, the Israeli ship that got hit, right? So we don't know who did that. And the Israelis admitted that at first, it seems likely it was Iran, but we don't really know. And then they started making worse claims that, yes, we do know it was Iran. That hit it. And I got to tell you, I think the American Pentagon does not want a war with Iran, but I think the Israelis might be perfectly happy to get us into one and to force a situation where they hit Iran hard enough and they leaked plans like this in the past that the Israelis would hit them with a cruise missile strike severe enough or even an airplane strike that it would force them to retaliate against American interests in the Gulf because they don't have that much that they can hit Israel with. They got some missiles, but. They would have to do something to American assets. And we got the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. We have the massive uh, air base in Qatar. I don't know, tens or hundreds of thousands, I guess, tens of thousands of troops in Kuwait and then still thousands in Iraq, uh, Saudi, Afghanistan, and then all the economic assets up and down the west side of the Persian Gulf there. 
that are, you know, in danger. So if they can be provoked into hitting all those targets, then that would force the Americans to do it. And it sounds crazy, but I'll tell you what, man, in 2007, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who had been Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, who got us into a lot of these messes back in the first place, but was always considered like the Democratic Party's Henry Kissinger. And he was like a patron or the, the Rockefellers were his patron and everything. But anyway, in 2007, he said in front of the U.S. Senate, if the Israelis try to bomb Iran, George Bush should shoot them down. And the senators were like, oh, my God, how can you blaspheme against Israel? You know, and he said, listen, it's not in America's interest to fight Iran. If the Israelis want to fight Iran, they can do that. But if they're going to do it in a way that's going to cause us harm, it would be better for George Bush to shoot down Israeli F-16s over Iraq on their way to Iran. And, and he was serious as hell about it. There was a real question of whether Bush was going to do this in 2007. And Admiral Fallon, who was the, set of, the head of CENTCOM, said, over my dead body, we're not doing it. I mean, which is just outright illegal insubordination. Like, what right does some admiral have to say that the president can't order him to battle? You know, I mean, I guess he could have stuck by his guns and said, I want a declaration of war from the Congress or something. But instead, he just said, no, Bush, I won't do it. And then, but for whatever reason, Bush wasn't quite in the position to fire him at that moment. It would have looked too bad to fire him. So they had to let him retire a few months later, but that was enough to stop it. And then just like a month or two after that, the CIA put out the official intelligence estimate saying Iran ain't making nukes anyway. This is all a bunch of crap anyway. So there's that really, you know, uh, took away from the pretext for war, but you know, nothing sank, right? Like the, the ship that got hit, it looked like it got hit with an RPG or something. I don't know what it got hit with, but it wasn't something very, very big. Um, and it was above the waterline. So nobody sank, nobody died. So, you know, you could just as easy just sweep the thing under the rug and ignore it. And honestly, I don't think the Iranians did do it. Like on one hand, there is an argument for it that they would, you know, put some mines on some ships occasionally or shoot an rpg at a ship in a very deniable way just to drive home the point that like look man i can sink your ship for 75 cents don't mess with us right like we can fight back in asymmetrical ways that will really hurt you so don't if they need to remind the american side of that from time to time i could see that as a possible motive but that doesn't mean i believe it just when they get accused by people who want to fight of starting a fight and the Ayatollah, you say whatever you want about him, but in terms of foreign policy, he's a cool customer. And that, I mean, he's ruthless. I ain't saying that the advantage he took in Iraq war two legendary man, put him right up there with Dick Cheney, son of a bitch, right? No question about that. But every time Dick Cheney tried to provoke him into a conflict, he didn't go for it at all. And Donald Trump, you know, um, well, there were times where he and Donald Trump almost came to blows and they both backed down. They both signaled that like, come on, we don't want to fight. And so, and I, I'm pretty sure that's still the consensus at the Pentagon that they don't want to fight, but that's the real danger. I think if, if, you know, if anything's going to happen here, it'll be because the Israelis get it kicked off for us. Maybe just one, one last question, just to kind of close off. Like I know the, the this book is kind of a call to end the war on terror. Uh, you, you know, I want that ended. You do. So do a, a lot of other people, but sometimes it's, it seems like we're up against, you know, the death star, no matter how much we protest, write books, podcasts, Nothing budges uh, in Washington and the military industrial Wall Street uh, complex. You know, recently Biden, um, I think 36 days into his uh, presidency, bombed uh, Syria. And so 
but then on the, on the other hand, so, you know, do you see any chance of the war on terror actually winding down? Or on the other hand, you know, there's full spectrum dominance. And when you talk about Afghanistan in your book, uh, you have a quote. Um, where is it? I had it here somewhere. Uh, here it is. Uh, Afghanistan as a tripwire for a possible conflict with Iran, Russia or China. Um, you know, military domination of Eurasia by the U.S. could destroy us before it secures a thing for us. And, you know, you, you mentioned Russia recently. Biden went on the offensive saying that we're never going to recognize Crimea. They're sending millions to Ukraine again. Um, and so it's like it can go either way. War on terror winding down. How hopeful are you there? And then, you know, what's the chance of escalating against uh, Russia or, or, or China? Okay, so I don't think there's going to be any major regime change wars in the region. I don't think they're going to attack Iran. I think that Biden has been burned on it. And really, they ran out of countries to attack that, you know, um, can't fight back or wouldn't just be extraordinarily costly. So but what is going to happen is we're going to have special operations wars and CIA drone wars in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, and all through North and West Africa from Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Sierra Leone and uh burkina faso and and libya and algeria probably as well i don't know algeria but um and they're just going to be they're going to keep on the low intensity warfare mostly um partnering with local militaries to fight any armed resistance groups anywhere in north and western africa um and in the you know through the levant and they want to keep Syria away from Assad this has nothing to do with fighting terrorism. You mentioned that Biden bombed Syria. Who did he bomb in Syria? He bombed Iraqi Shiite militias who are there to fight against ISIS. Right. Because and if we get into Iraq War four, it's going to be against the Shiites, the ones we've been fighting for for the last 17 years, almost 18 now. Um, and so uh, the whole thing is just nuts. Um, but I think, you know, my expectation is that the war against al-Qaeda broadly defined, including whatever they call associated groups like al-Shabaab in Somalia, which are totally a parochial concern, have nothing to do with any of this stuff, really. They, they claim they're al-Qaeda every time they get a sack of money from the Saudis, but they don't have an internationalist agenda at all. They're not really bin Ladenites. But anyway, um, AQAP in Yemen, whatever's left of ISIS in, uh, in uh, eastern Syria and western Iraq, the Idlib province in northwestern Syria is full of terrorists, except that they work for our friends, the, the uh, Turks. And they, you know, these are the CIA guys from the Obama years. And so what's the future of the Idlib province and the war against the bin Ladenites there? I really don't know. There's still moderate rebels if you ask the Democrats. So I don't I don't really know what the hell's going to happen there. Um, but then you got this group that calls themselves ISIS now in Afghanistan, which are really just local. They're basically what they are is Pakistani Taliban, but they call themselves ISIS. And now they have some new uh, Afghan members of like disaffected Taliban factions have joined them. But that's no threat to us. We're talking about as far as exile as you could get without being on your way back to the new world again on the other side. This is the border region in Nangarhar province between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the Taliban are the ones killing them. Washington Post even ran a thing about how the Joint Special Operations Command, the top tier American Special Operations Forces, they say we're flying as the Taliban's Air Force now because um, when the Taliban fights ISIS on the ground, our guys are flying drones in the air as air cover for the Taliban to kill the ISIS guys. It's just very few. It's totally a regional problem. It has nothing to do with us. We could you know, completely leave tomorrow. No one would care. Sorry about the thing. Um, um, 
Colin Powell's former chief of staff, Lawrence Wilkerson, has said, and he endorsed my book, by the way. He's a professor like you said. He, he gave fool's errand to his class. I was proud of that. Um, he said the reason that we're there is because of the Chinese Silk Road coming through, you know, that new Belt and Road Initiative, and the Americans want to be able to bomb it. And they want to be able, and I mentioned this in Fool's Errand too, they want to be able to seize Pakistani nuclear weapons if the kooks are going to get their hands on them, something like that. The Pakistanis have pretty good controls for that. But you know what? You do that from an air ba- from an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean if you really got to ride herd on Pakistani nukes. And, and is it even really the case that the guys at Bagram Air Base are ready to go code blue? We're going to Pakistan to seize nukes right now? Or I doubt that's even a thing. That's just an excuse. Right. They certainly don't have nuclear bombers there that they could use against Russia in the event of a war, like some major new strategic advantage. And then, like in that quote, now yeah, we're sharing a border with Iran. Sounds like a tripwire for war in a place where we don't even belong at all on the far side of Iran from Iraq. What could we possibly be doing there still after 20 years? Um, you know, um, except that. Nobody wants to back down. Everyone's afraid of being called weak. Every general wants another star and another stripe. And so it's a self-licking ice cream cone. They make their own problems. And, and you know, the same thing with Russia. Um, you know, in um, 1998, George Kennan, who had been the guy who really originated the containment policy against the Soviet Union in the 1940s, he um, was, you know, the considered the wisest of the State Department foreign policy graybeards or whatever at that time. And he did an interview with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, where he's opposing the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe. And the thing is, he was joined in this by really not just wise men, but really bad men, too, like Robert McNamara and Paul Nitsa who had advocated rollback of the Soviet Union, containments for wimps, let's roll them back, said Nitsa. They all agreed we should not expand NATO. And here's what George Kennan told Thomas Friedman. In fact, here's you can read this. It's called Now a Word from X. And because uh, when he wrote his containment policy article for foreign affairs, it was signed X uh, on the sources of Soviet conduct, if anyone wants to look into that, 1946. But anyway, now a word from X. And it's Kennan saying, oh, my God, this is the worst thing in the world. This is so stupid and horrible and wrong. And I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. OK, we're going to expand our military alliance into Eastern Europe. Then the Russians are going to react. And all the people now who promise us the Russians aren't going to react. This is perfectly fine. No problem. They're going to be the very same ones who say, aha, see, the Russians are dangerous. That's why we have to do this to defend Europe. But that's just not right. Damn it. We're the ones causing this fight here. And then he says, don't you people understand? These aren't the communists. These are the guys who got rid of the communists for us. We didn't have to fight the Soviet Union. The thing disappeared because these men destroyed it. And now we want to make them our enemies. Are you crazy? Okay, so that's it. George Kennan was right. And freaking Paul McNamara and Paul Nitz agreed with him. They were right. And Bill Clinton and Bush and Obama and the rest of these Atlantic Council goons that you mentioned, this whole industrial complex 
of NATO expansion, which was bankrolled from the beginning by Lockheed. Did you know Bruce Jackson, the Lockheed vice president, was the one who came up with the Committee for NATO expansion? And they later renamed it the Committee for NATO. <clears throat> Did I say I was trying to sell airplanes in the title of the thing? I didn't mean to put it like that. And that was how they did it. That was how they pushed it. And they now have us in border disputes with Russia in Ukraine. As you just said, they're sending weapons to Ukraine. Barack Obama, Joe Biden led the thing. He was the vice president at the time, led the thing when they did a coup in Ukraine in 2014. But Obama was afraid to send them weapons after that. The war that broke out in the east of the country was horrible. And um, and uh, he backed down because their military was completely infested with Hitler loving Nazis, like real proud grandsons of the Galatian SS from World War II who helped the Nazis perpetrate the Holocaust in Ukraine. Not like Alabama neo-Nazis. These are like Nazi Nazis, real Nazis. And so Obama was afraid to arm them. John Conyers, the congressman, actually had a resolution that banned training or arming any army that had a bunch of Nazis in it. And then guess what? They repealed that. The Democrats made them repeal the resolution. I mean, they couldn't just lie and say, there's no Nazis. What Nazis? They couldn't just lie. No, they had to repeal the thing that banned them from training and arming Nazis. So they didn't want to get in trouble, you know, <laughs> so they could aim, uh, arm and train Nazis. Um, and then, but Obama wouldn't send them the weapons. And you'll remember Donald Trump famously was literally, I, you can't make this up. You just can't make this up. He was impeached for holding up an arms deal to Ukraine temporarily on a pre quo quo pro quo that never happened at all. It was a complete farce. Um, and then, but now Biden's come in and as you said, he's sending them weapons. Well, you know what? We have a truce in eat. Sorry, stage right, stage left. We have a truce in eastern Ukraine right now. We had a horrible war there that America caused and America's puppet junta caused in 2014 and 15. And then the Germans and French hammered out a peace deal. Uh, Minsk, too. The first one didn't really take. But Minsk, too, has mostly kept the peace in the east. Well, what are we going to pour a bunch of arms in there for now? You know, they really want to restart a war on the Russian border. In a country that, as Pat Buchanan likes to say, is far to the east of what we ever even used to call Eastern Europe. The Ukraine was always considered a region under Russian dominance. You know, it's where the Russian civilization really springs from in the first place. It's I mean, even to say that that Ukraine is Russia's Canada might be even like not harsh enough. You know what I mean? It's a. It's a sometimes province. It's sort of like if Texas broke away from the U.S. Still, mm -hmm. we got very close ties that go way, way back. You know what I mean? So for the Americans, and I'll tell you what, watch this. You guys look at this on the Internet. You'll laugh your ass off. It's um, the old Stephen Colbert show on the Comedy Channel. And here's your search term. You can't miss it. It's one of a kind. The guy's name is Gideon Rose. Gideon Rose on the Stephen Colbert show. Gideon Rose is the editor of Foreign Affairs, the journal of the most prestigious foreign policy think tank in America, the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. And he goes on the Colbert show and he just tells the whole deal to Colbert. Here's what we're doing. We're overthrowing the government in Ukraine. It's really great. See, the deal is Ukraine is like Russia's girlfriend and we're breaking them up. Ukraine is like Robin to their Batman. And we're going to, you know, uh, sever the dynamic duo. 
we're taking Ukraine for ourselves, but we're going to do it in a really quick and clever way so that old dumb old Putin won't be able to do anything about it. Yeah, well, how'd that work out for you, right? They said that they wanted to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base. So the Russians just walked outside of their Sevastopol naval base and took over the entire peninsula. We talked about it earlier, a coup de main. That's what it was. It's exactly what it was in Crimea, a coup de main. The Russian military who were already leasing a base there that they had maintained since 1991 with no problems. Once America overthrew the government there for the second time in 10 years and threatened to kick them out of there, they just seized the whole peninsula. Didn't kill anyone, by the way. Nobody knows that. People, if you ask somebody how many people died when the Russians invaded Crimea, they'll tell you thousands or something. No one, not one person. I've seen the video of the Russians fire two shots over the heads of some Ukrainian soldiers and say in Russian, you boys ought to think about turning around, head the other direction. And then they do. And that's it. That is it. And and then they had a plebiscite where super duper majority of the population and European polling firms came and confirmed this, too. That super duper majorities of the population voted to rejoin the Russian, the Russian Federation. And really, Crimea had only belonged to Ukraine in, since 1954 because Khrushchev was from there. And after Stalin died, he needed the Communist Party of Ukraine to help solidify his power to succeed Stalin. And so he gave them Crimea. But so what? He's just the secretary general of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. His edict is law forevermore for all of mankind. I mean, that's like saying that um, you know, Bill Clinton gave Florida to Cuba, you know, okay, well, we're taking it back now. Florida's belonged to the United States of America since what the 18 teens, you know, so it's going to be like that. That's just how it is. 1820s, I guess that's just how it is. So, um, but if you, you know, the, this is important because the secretary of state, Tony Blinken just said, we will never accept Russian rule over Crimea. Shut up, man. What are you talking about? You'll never accept it. Okay. How about Russia will never accept uh, America's sock puppet rulers in Kosovo that we broke off from Serbia without a UN resolution or any semblance of law over the Russians dead body in 1999. You know, I mean, this is against the UN charter in a way, but then again, overthrowing the government in Kiev is against the UN charter too. And who started that fight? It's not to justify what the Russians did, but you have to acknowledge, just like in Syria, the Russians came in, they started bombing the hell out of the CIA's terrorists and whoever happened to be nearby. Okay. I'm not justifying that. I'm anti-war. Maybe don't use airplanes, drop bombs and kill humans. What the hell are you doing? But let's not sit here and pretend that that was not 100% Barack Obama and his government's fault. He forced Russia into the position of having to go and save Bashar al-Assad from who? Again, ask John Kerry. He'll tell you. ISIS. ISIS was going to take over Damascus. Just everyone type in. You don't believe me. It sounds crazy. Everyone just search John Kerry secret recording. Now, the New York Times version doesn't have all the best quotes. You got to find a later version. The New York Times broke the story and they didn't put all the good stuff in there. You got to find a later story about it. But you'll find the quotes and it's in the book. You'll find the quotes from him saying, look, the Russians didn't want ISIS to take over Baghdad. He might as well have been arguing Putin's case. Look, Putin had no choice. We gave him no choice. Baghdadi was going to be sitting on the throne in Damascus, chopping people's heads off, you know. And so um, same thing in Ukraine. America picked that fight. 
And then and really, the Russians could have invaded and seized the entire east of the country, but they didn't. The east of the country, they voted in a plebiscite, in a referendum. They wanted to join the the Russian Federation and Putin told them no. He didn't want them because it's a bunch of old pensioners and a bunch of rundown industry and a net loss for Russia. But he was willing to send special operations forces to help keep the new Nazi junta from conquering them, you know, to help them resist aggression. But and then the New York Times claimed 10 different times in 2014, I don't know, 10, at least five different times. Oh, no, Russia invades Ukraine. Here it is, everybody. It's on. Yeah, right. Never even happened. Special operations forces only. Never the infantry. You know, yeah. I, I had a uh, um, so down here in Mexico. I was when I was I was talking about this stuff in my classes. Uh, I also started high school and I had an American student and the American students parents sent letter to the principal and the depart- department director <laughs> calling me crazy conspiracy theorist anti-American. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm an American. I don't want my government uh, supporting terrorists and bomb- just, you know, it- I'm actually American. You're the one that's, you know, the, the, the right. anti-American. And so, um, and you know what? Yeah. You get us into an H bomb war and America doesn't exist at all anymore. And we're all dead. Then who's the anti-American then? Those of us who agreed with George Kennan that we should not pick this fight or a bunch of numb nuts who believe whatever their government tells them and denounces everyone who knows better than them as a traitor. I mean, have you lived through the same century that I have so far the last 20 years here where every single thing they said about why we had to do this stuff was wrong? The weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the mass rapes in Libya, the, you know, Assad waking up one morning and deciding to exterminate his entire country. And now we have to go and defend the helpless civilians from him somehow in Syria. I mean, they do nothing but lie. How about pretending that the Taliban knocked the towers down when it was a group of a couple of hundred Arabs who did that? It wasn't a, you know, and that was why all everybody came, became a 9-11 conspiracy theorist, because Bush said the Taliban did it. And that didn't make sense. A bunch of hillbilly cavemen from the far side of Pashtunistan knocked the towers down. But it wasn't them. It was a bunch of disaffected Egyptians and Saudis, son of a billionaire with an engineering degree and his partner, the surgeon from Cairo. You know, these were men of the world, men of society and and high educations. They knew exactly what they were doing, you know, what they were doing, giving the Americans an excuse to giving the American government an excuse to run our country into the ground. Mm-hmm. So that finally we would be so broken, we would come limping home from the Middle East the hard way, the long and the hard way, and leave them to their own misery over there. We could have yeah. just called it all off in the first place and saved ourselves the trouble. And you, you go towards the end of the book uh, into some of that, the economic costs, you know, and we're kind of seeing now what's happening in America, the, the, the collapsing economy, the, the middle class uh, disappearing, as well as the authoritarian measures uh, that are coming back home. But yep. um I guess in the interest of time, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there and, again, tell people to get the book. There's so much in the book. And like I said, it just covers pretty much uh, everything. And, you know, you get the book, you kind of understand, you get the big picture of what's what's really going on. You've got a, a bunch of websites. So I'm, I'm going to put the, all of the, the list in the description. Um, is there any last, you know, any place that people should particularly find you or, or any other project we should know about? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much. And I'm really glad to hear you describe the book that way. I and mean, that's really what I'm trying to do is draw a through line from 79 and let you see kind of the big picture the way I see it is how this stuff is played out. So 
I'm really glad that you liked it. And I hope everyone else does. You see it over my shoulder here. It's the balloon. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. Uh, before that was uh, Fool's Errand. Time to end the war in Afghanistan, which actually started out as chapter two of this thing and got kind of out of control. And I wrote a whole book and then I had to start over again. Uh, but anyway, I'm at um, the Libertarian Institute. I'm the director there. And this is our fund drive right now. And we've even got matching funds. So you like what you hear. You want to support libertarian anti-imperialism there. Uh, libertarianinstitute.org and you get nice kickback signed books and stuff like that if you donate there um, and uh, check that out and then i am editorial director of antiwar.com which is the most important project on the internet obviously i'm on the uh, radio on sunday mornings in los angeles kpfk 90.7 fm in la and i've got 5400 and something interviews for you all going back to uh, 2003 they're almost all about foreign policy at scotthorton.org Oh, and one more thing. You can find all my shows are archived at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show. But also if you go there and click on the playlists, I've got this new video series. It's the video adaptation of the new book where I just sat in this chair facing that way and did in one day, knocked out 14 chapters explaining the whole thing. And uh, all of them are published now. So you can find all of those uh, kind of the Cliff's Notes version of the book there um at uh, youtube.com slash scott horton show and i think that's it <laughs> yeah I, I saw most of those video clips and they were really really well uh, produced and and really good by the way i sometimes when i when i'm looking for guests i'll i'll look at the people you interview and try to steal some of them for my podcast you are welcome so <laughs> to man poach my list they're the greats all right well thanks for being on geopolitics and empire very uh, happy to be here thank you for having me